0: Luke chapter 1 and then Luke chapter 2. We'll read selected verses from both of these passages. I speak on the subject, the joys and sorrows of motherhood. And this is a message that goes both with Mother's Day and with communion. I spoke along this line a couple of years ago when we had Mother's Day observance out on the ball field, but I'm a little bit deeper. I'm going to pursue some things I did not say then. There's just something sacred about motherhood. The poet has well said, sweetest words of tongue or pen, mother, home, and heaven. Mother, home, and heaven. Those three go together, don't they? How many a soldier dying on the battlefield has whispered with his last breath, mother. Mother. These themes of motherhood and communion, the Lord's table, go together. And you'll see this as we talk about Mary, the mother of Jesus, who stood at the foot of the cross and saw her son and her Savior die. She uttered the Magnificat, as it's known, recorded in Luke chapter 1, spirit-filled utterance after being told that she would be the mother of the Messiah, the mother of the Son of the Highest. I won't read the entire Magnificat for the sake of time, but please look at verse 46 of Luke 1. And Mary said, My soul doth magnify the Lord, and my spirit hath rejoiced in God my Savior. Please note that. My spirit hath rejoiced in God my Savior. For he hath regarded the lowest state of his handmaiden. For behold, from henceforth all generations shall call me blessed. For he that is mighty hath done to me great things, and holy is his name. On the eighth day after Jesus was born, he was presented in the temple according to the laws, of the Levitical laws of purification... He was dedicated to the Lord, and often we will dedicate children to the Lord on this platform. It ought to mean something special to the parents involved when they realize that the parents of Jesus did the same with Him. And there was an aged man who spoke, first of all to both parents, and then to Mary, verse 25 of chapter 2, Luke 2, verse 25. And behold, there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, a common name, and the same man was just and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Ghost was upon him, and it was revealed unto him by the Holy Ghost that he should not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came by the Spirit into the temple, and when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him after the custom of the law, then took he him up in his arms, the infant Christ, and blessed God, and said, Lord, now lettest thou thy servant depart in peace according to thy word, for mine eyes have seen thy salvation. He didn't say my Savior, he said thy salvation, which thou hast prepared before the face of all people, a light to lighten the Gentiles, and the glory of thy people Israel. And Joseph and his mother marveled at those things which were spoken of him, Verse 34, And Simeon blessed them and said unto Mary his mother, Behold, this child is set for the fall and rising again of many in Israel, and for a sign which shall be spoken against. Yea, a sword shall pierce through thine own soul also, that the thoughts of many hearts may be revealed. The most famous mother of all history, experienced the greatest extremes of conflicting emotions. Mary, the mother of Jesus, felt a joy that far exceeded that of mere natural motherhood. And the Bible speaks, it's a proverbial thing about, you know, the uh, travail the of childbirth, but how a, a mother forgets that for joy that a child is born into the world. But Mary's joy far exceeded that of even realizing a child had been born after her birth pangs. Likewise, her sorrow exceeded that of natural birth pangs. Her sorrow, 33 years later, upon seeing her son die a horrible death on a Roman cross, and she was helpless to do anything about it, that far surpassed the most excruciating pangs of childbirth. Now, usually, the joys of motherhood follow travail, the sorrow of childbirth, but in Mary's case, the greatest sorrow was yet to come after the joy of bringing the Messiah into the world, just as Simeon prophesied. I hope this meditation will be a blessing to you today, especially to our mothers, and I trust that it will just segued naturally into the observance of the Lord's table. Now, there's a message here for all of us, not just for moms. The more we enter into spiritual travail, the greater will be our joy. My prayer for you is, your pastor this morning is that Mary's experience will be that of all of us. So we're going to talk about the joy first and then the Sorrow abounding joy, and then abject sorrow. In chapter 1, we read in verses 46 through 49, which constitute what has come down through the New Testament era to be known as Mary's Magnificat. That's Latin. You see the word magnify in there. We get the word magnify from that. What does magnify mean? It means to make bigger, right? And if we want to make bigger our God, how do we do that? I mean, He's He's already as big as he can get. He's already supremely great. But how can we make him greater? The only way we can do that is to extol him, to praise him, to bless his name. And that's what Mary did. The angel Gabriel had announced to her that she would be the mother of the Son of the Highest. That expression refers certainly uh, to the Messiah. It was the dream of every devout Jewish girl that she would get to be that mother. Even when Eve bore Cain, she said, Behold, I've gotten, and in the Hebrew it means the man from the Lord. She was hoping he would be Messiah. Oh, how disappointed she became. And so Mary, when she was the one favored to be the mother of Messiah, and it was announced to her by the angel Gabriel, she said very submissively and in faith, Behold the handmaid of the Lord, be it unto me according to thy word. That's found in verse 38 of the same first chapter. Then what did she do? I love this. We always share our joys with somebody else, don't we? In Mary's case, she had to be, Judicious about who she shared it with because she was not married. And yet she had been told by an angel she would be with child. But she knew one person would understand, and that was her cousin Elizabeth, who also was miraculously pregnant with a child. John the Baptist, who became the forerunner of Jesus, so she runs into Judea and as soon as her feet cross the threshold of Zacharias and Elizabeth's house, Elizabeth breaks out into a spirit-filled beatitude and the babe leaps in her womb, not the fetus, but the babe, and says, Blessed art thou among women. Blessed is the fruit of thy womb. I mean, here were two pregnant mothers, one just a teenager, and uh, on cloud nine, and Mary had... Elizabeth had no sooner finished her Benedictus, which is effectively what it is, though Zacharias' utterance is called that. But Elizabeth had no sooner finished her spirit inspired utterance than Mary began her Magnificat, of which we read a few moments ago. Now, here's what I want to dwell on why was this teenage girl so happy? In what did she exult? Let's talk about three things. I hope this will mean something to you. First of all, she exalted, she rejoiced in the holiness of God. Before she spoke of anything that Yahweh had done for her personally, she worshipped and praised Him for who He was. Verse 46, my soul doth magnify the Lord. Kurios, the master, the supreme master, the covenant-keeping God of Israel, the high and holy one that inhabiteth eternity. Could I just stop there and say there's a lesson here for all of us, whether you're a mother or not. And that is before you rush into the presence of a holy God and unleash a torrent of give-me requests, would you take a few moments to meditate on the God with whom you have to do? We're not very good at that. Many of us know how to pray. We know how to ask God for things, but we don't know how to begin to worship Him. It's not a part of our DNA. It's not not a discipline we've developed. But Mary worshipped. She worshipped God for His holiness. Could I remind you who He is holy? That's His chief attribute that just... Sums up all the others. Our God is so holy that angels bow their heads and fold their wings before Him. He charges them with folly, the Bible says, and the very heavens are not pure in His sight. That's how holy He is. And such contemplation, if we know Jesus as Lord and Savior, if we've been reconciled to that holy God, the thought of His holiness does not need to bring dread and cringing terror. It does to many people. But when Mary mentioned the holiness of God, do you realize she was singing? This is a hymn. This is an ode of praise. It's a joyful thing. She was exulting in the holiness of God's essential nature. She said, for he that is mighty hath done to me great things, in verse 49, and holy is his name. Now, how can you rejoice in the holiness of God? You're going to have to realize what Mary realized. You're going to have to realize that God's holiness is on your side if you know His Son is your Savior. If you have trusted in the wounds of the man born in Bethlehem from Mary, those wounds now plead for you even at the right hand of the Father. Yes, it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. We read in the book of Hebrews, our thrice holy God is a consuming fire. We don't hear much preaching on that today. It's not very popular. But the last I checked, it's still in the book. But if you have come to know Christ as your Savior and you have been reconciled to a holy God, I want you to know this morning, His holiness is on your side The holiness of God was a consolation to Mary. She could sing about it. And it is precisely because God is holy that He will keep His covenant with His anointed. And if you are in Jesus Christ, if you are accepted in the Beloved, then He will keep His covenant with you. He has sworn by His holiness and He cannot lie. That's something to get happy about. So she joyed, she exulted, first of all, in the holiness of God, but then she exulted in the bliss of salvation. Many, many times we've said it, especially at Christmas time when we talk about Mary giving birth to to Jesus, our Lord and our Messiah. We've said it so many times, but we need to say it again. If Mary needed a Savior, and she did, she said, My spirit hath rejoiced in God my Savior. If Mary needed a Savior, how much more do you and how much more do I need one? What kind of a Savior is He? Well, He's a Savior from sin. A lot of times I'll ask people, have you been saved? And I get some of the strangest answers. I've mentioned this several times. A lady in the Cayman Islands whose sister came to our church faithfully and she was concerned for her. Whenever I'd witnessed her, I'd get the same response every time. i asked ask her if she was saved. She'd say, uh, preacher, if it wasn't for God, I don't know where I'd be. Well, just because God has preserved you to this moment in long-suffering and mercy does not mean you're saved. Just because you've been delivered from close calls, from brushes with death, from disease, that does not mean that God is, His face is toward you and His favor is toward you. We need a Savior from sin. Remember Joseph, when he realized Mary was pregnant and, and he knew it wasn't because of him, He was minded to put her away privily, to divorce her privily. He didn't want to shame her, but he didn't know what to do. He was torn apart in his heart and conscience. As he tried to get some sleep one night, the angel appeared to him and said, Fear not to take unto thee Mary thy wife, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Ghost. And he gave gave Joseph the name. The angel gave Mary the name also, but I believe it first happened to Joseph. He shall, thou shalt call his name Jesus for he shall save his people from Rome? No. From death? No. From their sins. From their sins. Every one of us needs a savior from sin. We are all sinners. And it's so insightful how Simeon, the aged man that we read about in chapter 2, he picks up on this theme in his utterance in chapter 2, verse 30. Lord, now let thy servant depart in peace, for mine eyes have seen thy salvation. He was holding Jesus, an infant of eight days, as he said those words. And he didn't say, for mine eyes have seen the Savior. He said, mine eyes have seen thy salvation. Wow. Wow what faith. Jesus was the sacrifice as well as the priest offering the sacrifice. And so the bliss of salvation is realized, first of all, through the Savior God. Mary said, my spirit hath rejoiced in God my Savior. What does that remind you of? Anything in the Old Testament comes to mind? Reminds me of Abraham offering up Isaac. Would you turn there quickly to Genesis chapter 22? Please keep your finger in Luke chapter 1 and 2, but Genesis chapter 22, while you're turning, I'll set the stage, give the backdrop. Abraham is told to take his son Isaac, his only son, his only son of promise. He had another son, Ishmael, but that was the son of the handmaid. Abraham is to take his only son, the son of promise, Isaac, and to go to a mountain that God will show him of and to offer him as a sacrifice. So Abraham immediately obeys God, doesn't tell Sarah what he's going to do. Her heart couldn't take it. And when the aged father uh, obeyed his his God and took his beloved son, Isaac, to Mount Moriah to offer him as a sacrifice, the obedient son was very familiar with this ritual. He'd probably seen it scores of times. When they got to Mount Moriah and 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 Abraham built the altar, and Isaac had seen him take his knife and, and the wood with him, but he, he turns to his dad and says, My father, behold the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? Very plausible question. Very sincere. And please notice verse eight classic words, timeless words, prophetic words. And Abraham said, my son, God will provide himself a lamb for a burnt offering. Isn't that wonderful? That's exactly what God did on the cross of Calvary. God provided Himself a lamb. The Bible says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, God was in Christ reconciling the world unto Himself, not imputing their trespasses unto Him. God Himself became the Savior, and the Holy Spirit enabled a pregnant teenager to see that, and she rejoiced in prospect of God being her Savior. The bliss of salvation is realized not only through the Savior God, but it's realized through personal faith in that Savior. I love the first person singular pronoun that Mary uses. My spirit hath rejoiced in God, my Savior. Many people love to recite Psalm 23. It's quoted at about every funeral, it's put on the back of programs more than any other passage of Scripture. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. But let me tell you, you can't say he's my shepherd unless you can say, first of all, he's my Savior. Because he's the good shepherd who gave his life for the sheep. And if you had been the only sinner who ever lived, he would still have come and bled and died just for you. He is a personal Savior. Mary's song was not only a hymn of joy, but it was an ode of faith. It really took faith for Mary to say what she said. Have you ever stopped to think about that? Because when she said these words here in Luke chapter uh, uh, 1, the Savior had not yet been born. She was pregnant, barely. But Jesus had not yet been born. And yet she says, My spirit hath rejoiced in God my Savior. Perhaps she hadn't even had any morning sickness. She wasn't showing yet. But she knew that with God all things are possible. And she had received that promise from the angel, and that was enough for her. She believed. Please hear me this morning. If Mary needed a Savior, how much more do you? And how much more do I? It was by faith that she perceived the truth about this coming Savior, and she received her Son as Savior from sin. It was by faith. In just a few moments, we're going to take the bread and the juice and these little prepackaged things you have. I just want you to know, you don't receive Christ that way. Millions of people around the world are doing that today, and they think they're receiving Christ. How deceived. Bible says in John 1 verse 12, But as many as received Him, to them God gives the power, the authority to become the sons of God, even to them that, what, have communion? No, even to them that believe on His name. That's how you receive Christ. You trust Him from the heart. You believe on His name. And when Mary did that, God set His seal on her faith and made her happy. I know some Christians have just enough religion to be miserable. But Mary got happy. And she sang. And she sang not just because she was the favored one, that she was the one honored to give birth to the long awaited Messiah, but she sang because in that same person, her Savior from sin had now arrived on the earth. There was another reason for Mary's abounding joy, and this is one we seldom think of, because it didn't happen right away. But would you? take your Bibles and turn to the book of Acts. Fast forward 33 years, and the Bible mentions Mary for one last time. This is the last time Mary is mentioned in the Bible, in the New Testament. She's listed as being among those in the upper room waiting for the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. Acts chapter 1 Verse 14, these all continued, it names the apostles, these all continued with one accord in prayer and supplication with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with His brethren, His natural siblings. She was probably only in her 40s. If she was a teenager when Jesus was born, which is very likely, she was probably only in her 40s at this time. But she remembered the promise of her Son and her Savior in John chapter 16, verse 20, that they would have sorrow, but their sorrow would be turned to joy. Just the reverse of what had already happened. And she was later filled with the Holy Spirit of the exalted Christ. And on the day of Pentecost, I believe with all my heart, that Mary's lacerated heart was healed. And now she was surpassingly joyful. I know there's so much confusion on this matter of the fullness of the Holy Spirit. And you've heard me talk about it so many times. Yes, it is a matter of sanctification in the sense of Ephesians chapter 5. But in the sense of Acts chapter 2, it is something that happened to those uh, di- uh, disciples, those gathered in the upper room, not just something that happened in them. There's a difference between the sanctification mentioned in Ephesians chapter 2 and the empowerment mentioned in Acts chapter 2. Or, yes. I'm not Pentecostal. I just believe what the historic preachers have believed for centuries until the last 150 years, when modern dispensationalism has done away with the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. And it gets real quiet every time I talk about it. Mary experienced that. Mary received the fullness of the Holy Spirit and she rejoiced. Thank God for Spirit-filled mothers who are joyful in Jesus. What an example. What a memory for their children. Dear mothers and grandmothers, do you make your home a happy place? Is it a sanctuary from the world? Do you teach your children to sing? Do you have the right kind of music just permeating the house, piping through the house. You can you have the technology for it nowadays. I mean, if you have a, a cell phone, you you can get on all kinds of apps, programs for that. Make sure it's the right kind of music. Singing is the natural language of joy. Singing is the language of heaven. Singing pleases God. If you want a spirit-filled child, have godly, Christ-honoring music in your home all the time. I know I'm dating myself, and I hope you realize that I am older than I look. But I remember those prehistoric times, before CDs, before cassettes, before 8-track, and that was a long time ago. Before 33 and a third speed records, they had this dinosaur of a thing called 78 speed records. I won't ask how many of you remember those. That that would be embarrassing. But my mother had that. We had the old-fashioned phonograph. And I remember hearing in my home as just a young boy, George Beverly Shea singing, I'd rather have Jesus than anything this world can afford today. He bought my soul through death. On, and those songs, I remember them word perfect to this day. My mother only had three years of music training, but she made the most of it. She had an ear. And she taught her eight children to sing and we had the worst beat up piano you've ever seen. I don't know how it survived. The ivory was off of it. Strings were broken. We never tuned it because we know it would break more strings, cause more trouble. But somehow we learned on that piano, and we sang. Our chip, My siblings still sing together to this day. Thank God for a spirit-filled mother that loved music. Is the default setting of your heart praising? If you have a spirit-filled mother with loves music, the default setting of your heart will probably not be complaining, it will be praising. Mother, you have no idea what power you have over your children to cause them to be rejoicing, praising Christians. I wish I could say more. Let me go on to the second point. I mentioned it at the outset. Not only did Mary experience abounding joy, But Luke records the utterance of Simeon, which refers to her abject sorrow to come. As you look at chapter 2, verse 35, I won't read the whole passage, verse 34, I should say, verse 34, chapter 2, and Simeon, this aged man coming by the Spirit into the temple, Blessed them and said unto Mary, his mother, Behold, this child is set for the fall and rising again of many in Israel, and for a sign which shall be spoken against. And then he went on. Or before that, he had said in what is known as the Nunc Dimittis, he took the baby in his arms and he said, now, Lord, let thy servant depart in peace, verse 29, uh, uh, for verse 30, for mine eyes have seen thy salvation, which thou hast prepared before the face of all people, a light to lighten the Gentiles and the glory of thy people Israel. This old man, I don't know how old he was, but probably old enough to be the great, great grandfather of the baby he was holding. Uh, Many a man his age would have been reluctant to hold a newborn baby for fear that they would tremble too much or, or lose their balance and drop him. But not Simeon. With strong arms and strong faith, he takes him into his arms and he blesses God and he utters his famous nunc dimittis. He came into the temple just at the very time that Mary and Joseph were bringing the infant Jesus to be dedicated and to offer the purification sacrifice it wasn't that God had told him that was the moment to come it was just that he had been told that he would not die until he had seen the Lord's salvation and there's no prejudice in this old Jew he has a heart just like God his father's he has a heart that takes in a whole world both Jew and Gentile and so he makes known God's gracious purposes through this baby for all flesh But when he said that, a light to lighten the Gentiles and the glory of thy people Israel, if there was anybody else in the temple, don't you know that really struck them probably not too pleasant. The Gentiles were the enemies, the Goyim. The Gentiles were the idolaters. But God had sent this baby to be a light to them too? I'm sure Mary took mental note of that. She filed it away in her heart with all those other things that she continued to ponder. And both Mary and Joseph, it says right here, marveled at those things which were spoken of him. And Simeon, I believe, this old man, is in a state of rapture as he holds that eight-day-old Christ in his arms. And he blesses, to begin with, he blesses both parents, both Mary and Joseph, verse 34. He says to them, He blessed them and said unto Mary, Behold, this child is set for the fall and rising again of many in Israel. Now what does that mean? This child is set. It means is destined, destined for the fall and rising again of many in Israel and for a sign which shall be spoken against, and we'll stop there for now. Don't you know Mary never forgot those words? They were etched indelibly on her mind and heart. This was a message straight from God to her. It, On the surface, it looks like Simeon is dropping a bomb and injecting a heavy message. I mean, when we have a baby dedication here, it's a pretty joyous occasion, but this was heavy stuff. Remember, Mary was going to experience a growing sorrow about her son. First of all, she would experience a gradual distancing from him. Even at 12 years of age, he would say to her in the temple when they went a day's journey back and forgot that that he wasn't with them, didn't even check to see, when they finally found him, she said, thy father and I have sought thee sorrowing. And his response was, why did you seek for me sorrowing? Did you not know that I must be about my father's business? And then later in, the, in Jesus' life, as he began his earthly ministry and he turned water into wine, the first miracle in Cana of Galilee, as it's recorded in John chapter 2, Mary is used to come to him and to say, they have no wine. What are you going to do about it? And Jesus says to her, what have I to do with thee, woman? My hour is not yet come. She, he wasn't being disrespectful, but it was... It was a a refutation of sorts, a rebuff. So Mary was experiencing a gradual distancing from her son. She didn't understand the crushing sorrow that was yet to come because of her relation to the baby that the old man was now holding. Now why did Jesus, the only perfect baby ever born to a human mother, bring sorrow to the heart of that mother? Why would Mary have her heart broken by her son? There's three reasons. They're related. I think it's important to distinguish them. I'll say this and then I'll be done. Why was her heart broken by her son? The first two lead up to the third. Number one, because of having to bear Jesus' reproach. I'm not sure how much or how little we realize that Mary was scandalized by her virgin conception of Jesus. Don't you know it? You don't have to have a real overactive imagination to, to, to see this. Don't you know that she became the talk of the town of Nazareth? And not in a good way. I mean, she may have found favor with God, but her reputation with man was ruined. And it remained that way for decades. Don't you know that the vast majority of people in Nazareth assumed that Mary and Joseph had a sin-induced pregnancy followed by a shotgun wedding? Most of the citizens of Nazareth Must have avoided Mary. Don't you know that she dreaded to go to the marketplace? Probably she sent her children as soon as they were old enough, or Joseph went. She was the butt of the gossip and the whispering. She she received those disparaging glances. Even when Jesus was more than 30 years of age, people were still taking nasty swipes at Him and His mother. We read in John 8, verse 41, when Jesus exposed the Jewish rulers... they felt embarrassed. The only retaliation was an ad hominem attack and they said, we be not born of fornication like you. Even Joseph, though he loved Mary dearly, could not account for her being pregnant. And for a time, he just assumed that she was impure. Thank God the angel appeared to him and convinced him otherwise. Mary had to bear the reproach of her son early. Yes, she was honored to be the mother of the long-awaited Messiah, but in her lifetime she was scandalized. In a very real sense, her life was ruined. She lost her reputation, and for a time she was rejected by her fiancé. She had to bear the reproach of the one whom she bore physically for nine months and then was mystified for 33 more years. There's a lesson here for all of us, whether you're a mother or not. And that is, we need to be willing to bear the reproach of Jesus Christ. We're not good at that. We've had so little persecution in America. Would you take your Bibles and turn to Hebrews chapter 13? Hebrews chapter 13. Are you willing to have your life ruined? For Christ. Are you willing to have your good evil spoken of? Hebrews chapter 13, verse 12, Wherefore Jesus also, that He might sanctify the people with His own blood, suffered without or outside the gate, the gate of the city of Jerusalem. The modern day city of Jerusalem has a bigger precincts than when Jesus was crucified. Let us, verse 13, let us go forth therefore unto him without or outside the camp, bearing his reproach. What does reproach mean? It means his discredit, his disgrace, being insulted because of him. So I ask you this morning, are you willing to bear the reproach of Jesus? Do you rejoice when you're called upon to suffer shame for his name? Do you remember the promise? If we suffer with him, we shall also reign with him. Mothers, you're praying for your children to follow Jesus fully. That's a worthy prayer. But do you realize where that may lead? What if your child follows Jesus fully and is willing to go outside the camp bearing his reproach and and they're thrown in prison and their good is evil spoken of and they're maligned and they're criticized and they're ostracized and you're known as their mother. Are you ready for that? Then the abject sorrow of Mary over Jesus is seen because she would have to witness his being resisted. That was referred to in the first part of Simeon's words to her in verse 34, Behold, this child is set or destined for the fall and the rising again of many in Israel. Many would fall because of her son Jesus. Most of her beloved countrymen would stumble at that stone of stumbling, that rock of offense that Isaiah had prophesied eight hundred. Years earlier about, yes, Jesus came unto His own, as we read in John chapter 1 verse 11, but His own received Him not, only a small, faithful remnant like Zacharias and Elizabeth and Anna and Simeon and a few humble shepherds and a little later the Magi and Nathaniel and some others. only a relatively small few would recognize Him for who He is and fall down and worship Him. The rest scandalized Him. they would fall, never to rise again. Furthermore, the son that Simeon was holding would be a sign, Simeon said, which shall be spoken against. What does that mean? It means Jesus would be opposed. He would bring out the worst in people. You realize that even Joseph and Mary's other children, half-siblings to Jesus, Because Mary and Joseph did have other children. Mary was not a perpetual virgin. Don't believe that. Other children would oppose Jesus for a time. They would say to Him back in their hometown of Nazareth, go do your miracles somewhere else. Mary had to see that. I must tell you something that's very unflattering. We are all by nature enemies of God. Opposers of God. We need to be reconciled to God or he will not share his heaven with us. Lastly, thirdly, Mary experienced abject sorrow. This is the heart of the matter because of having to witness Jesus being rejected at his death. You know, every word in the Bible is inspired. Even those words that are in parentheses. We look at a so-called parenthetical expression. We think just because the sentence can make sense without it, that it's not important. But listen, this phrase in verse 35 that is in parenthesis speaks volumes. Yea, a sword shall pierce through thy own soul also. When did that happen? Listen to John 19, verse 25. We read it at the beginning of the service. Now there stood by the cross of Jesus His mother and his mother's sister, and the names are given, and Mary Magdalene. Mary saw Jesus die. She heard the cries. She saw the blood flowing. She saw the cruelty of the soldiers. She saw what the chief priests and the elders were casting into the teeth of her son. A sword pierced through her soul, even as a spear pierced Jesus' side. And she could do nothing about it. It's something to write about and to think about. A poet has captured the scene so poignantly. Allow me to close with a poem. I don't do that all the time. I don't, re- I don't apologize for doing it today. Near the cross, her vigil keeping, stood the mother worn with weeping. Where he hung her dying Lord, through her soul in anguish groaning, bowed in sorrow, sighing, moaning, past the sharp and piercing sword. Oh, the weight of her affliction, hers who won God's benediction, hers who bore God's holy one. Oh, that speechless, ceaseless yearning from those dim eyes, never turning from her wondrous suffering. Son, can you imagine what Mary felt then? Don't you know she remembered what this old man had said as he held her baby? Saying, in effect, your heart's going to break so that other hearts will be revealed. That's what Simeon went on to say. A sword will pierce through your own heart. Why? That the thoughts of many hearts may be revealed. I close by saying this before we observe the Lord's table together, your response to the person and work of Jesus Christ is still the litmus test for acceptance with God and admission into His heaven. The big question for us is, what think ye of Christ? Because He will reveal your true heart I don't really care what others think of you. I don't care how many letters of recommendation you can have others send to me. I don't care how generous you are, how moral you are, even what a good mother you are to your children, as wonderful as that is. I want to know, what do you think of Jesus? Can you honestly say, He is my Savior? Let's renew our faith and love in the bleeding Savior God as we draw near to his table, shall we? Father, thank you for reminding us of this truth. Thank you for sending your Son via a human mother, made of a woman, made under the law, to redeem them that are under the law. As we partake of these elements in just a moment that so beautifully celebrate that redemption, would you sanctify that ordinance to our hearts and lives O Lord, break our hearts anew, that our love may be poured forth like that woman with the alabaster box, like precious perfume at your feet. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.